Thank you very much, Graham. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful privilege uh, to be able to open up God's words, especially in a place where I can really sense a tangible uh, sense of God's presence, uh, and hopefully you can feel that too. Uh, I'd like to turn with me to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, as Graham says, we are going through a series that had approached them uh, a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a few months ago now, just to say I wondered, uh, probably quite selfishly for myself as well, um, if we could get together and go through the book of Philippians and then hopefully uh, deliver it as part of a series uh, to you guys. And uh, I listened to Graham's message from last week, and Graham really uh, gave us a sense and a feel for what Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians is all about. Um, interestingly, uh, as I've been preparing for this week, I have this real sense that I could say anything up here, and if God is not in it, then you're not going to listen. I could say whatever I want, I could be the best orator in the world, which believe you me, I'm not, if you've heard me before, uh, you'll be able to testify to that. But if God is not in it, if God does not open up your heart, you will not receive what is being said. And interestingly, Graham pointed out the fact last week from Acts chapter 16 that this church at Philippi was founded on that principle because the first convert was Lydia. And what does it say in Acts chapter 16 about Lydia? That God opened up her heart and enabled her to believe the message that Paul had brought. And can I tell you guys, Graham and I have been specifically praying for every one of you here. Over these past few weeks, I've never prayed more over a passage or over uh, a letter or over uh, a message as much as Graham and I have over these past few weeks. So I'm expecting change. I'm expecting God to work. Not because I'm great. Not because Graham's great. Probably is. But because God is great. Let's come to God's word and let's read Philippians chapter 2. This is the word of God. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude, attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, sorry, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run nor labour for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering in the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out not for his everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me with the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him to you soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I, will say, I myself will come soon. I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for you, with, longs for all of you and in distress because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy in him, and not only in him, but on me also, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when, I, when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Let's just pray and ask for God's blessing on our time here. God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it hits us, Lord, right between the eyes. Sometimes we don't want to hear it, Lord, but boy, do we need it. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you love us so much that you do not tell us just what we want to hear. You tell us what we need to hear. And Lord, I pray that in this place, your spirit would move. Apply your word, Lord, to each and every heart in this place. We love you. We thank you for the power that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we say and we ask that it would be seen here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the more I read my Bible, the more mature I become uh, as a Christian. Uh, the more I realise, the more I kind of come to the, the realisation, I'm quite slow, uh, that the church collectively and that the Christian individually are called to such radical living that it can only be explained by the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we settle for second best, guys. We say that the world needs to know Jesus, so therefore I need to let the world know that I'm just what they that's not the teaching of scripture, guys. The teaching of scripture says that we are different, that we are set apart, that we are God's children. The church is God's people, God's shining example here on earth, God's glory here on earth is the church. And we are to live such radically different lives that people look on and say, I want what you've got. 
If we here at Moody's Bournemouth Union, your own life and my church back in Bells Hill, had to put into practice the words of the Apostle Paul here in Philippians, then what I believe we would have ourselves is nothing less than a miracle of God. A miracle that will cause others to sit up and to take notice. A miracle that, if I'm being honest, I believe makes the turning from water to wine or making the blind man see seem like child's play. You know, something that's worth pointing out right at the very start as we go through this chapter in chapter 2. It's vitally important as we look at God's word, as we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, that we recognise the link between what God does and what God is doing in our salvation and about our responsibility to do what we are asked to do as a result. Verse 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2 are crucial in this. What does it say? In verse 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Here Paul clearly talks about the Philippians' responsibility for their participation in their salvation. Not the achieving of it. The Bible is clear that the achieving of our salvation is through Christ and through his work at Calvary. But the working out in love and obedience to God and to his word. Love and obedience that Paul says is stirred up by God's Spirit at work in our lives. God's Spirit abiding in them. What does he say for it is God who works in you to will and to act for his good purpose. There's what God does, there's what God is doing, and there is our responsibility for what we are to do as a result. And Philippines really uh, brings that out to us. If you see Paul's calls to obedience here in Philippians as a tick box exercise, as a, like, there's something that Paul says, so I need to try in my own effort, in my own strength to do this. Can I tell you something, guys? You'll fall flat on your face. I'm living testimony to that fact because I've tried to do it in my own strength, in my own way, forgetting that it is God who wills in me to act for his good pleasure. But you know, there's something that we need to look at as well, because trying to do the tick box exercise without God's power at work in our lives is called legalism. And we've heard of that word, that's something we're all conscious of. But there's another side to the coin as well. There's something called antinomianism. And that's a word that up until a few months ago I didn't even know what it meant. Antinomianism basically says, well, we are saved by God's grace, therefore we've got a ticket to heaven, and we don't need to worry about what happens in between our conversion and when we get to heaven. Philippians makes it clear that it does matter. Philippians makes it clear that our Christian conduct is crucial in our lives so that the world will see the difference that Christ can make through his life-changing gospel. If you go for legalism, if you go for antinomianism, what you're left with is joyless, fruitless Christianity, if it's even Christianity at all. You know what Paul says in his letter here to the Philippians is only possible, but let me tell you guys, it is possible. 
through the life-changing power that is available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John chapter 15? If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The clear teaching of scripture is this, that where there's Jesus, there's fruit, and vice versa. If there's no Jesus, there's no fruit, and if there's no fruit, then you can be sure that there is no Jesus. If you've been reading through Philippians, as Graham encouraged you to do last week, I'm sure you'll have noticed that Jesus has mentioned in this letter a hang of a lot. Can I tell you, he's mentioned 47 times to be exact, either, in by, either by name or by title. And can I tell you, that that's an average of every 2.2 verses. Every 2.2 verses, Jesus is mentioned. Can I tell you something, see whenever I'm on the phone, you'll never be in any doubt as to who I'm on the phone to. Because a conversation with me on the phone usually goes like this. Say I'm on the phone to Graham. Yes, Graham, I, Graham. Aye, that's it. And you've heard Sandy Steen's the same, by the way. So if you ever listen to Sandy on the phone, you'll notice the exact same thing. Aye, Graham, yeah, aye. aye. That sounds good, Graham, yeah. And usually when I come off the phone, I hang the phone up and feel I'll say to me, kidding on, and yes, who is that you're on the phone to? No doubt, I was on the phone to Graham. No doubt that nothing in this book, nothing in this letter to the Philippians that we are called to do is possible without the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you take nothing else from what I'm telling you today, guys, take that. Jesus is central. Jesus is the one who began a good work. And Jesus is the one who will carry on to completion. The behaviour that Paul expects from the Philippians and would expect from us here at Moody's Bond should be viewed purely and simply as a fruit of a life that is surrendered to Jesus Christ. See if it seems impossible, guys, and I'm hoping that it does seem impossible, that's good. Because see when God makes that happen in your life, you'll not think how great am I? You'll think how great is he? George Muller, who was very famous for setting up the orphanages and stuff down in Bristol, said this, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Faith begins where man's power ends. So what exactly am I talking about? What behaviours does Paul either insist upon or exhibit in his letter to the Philippians that are so countercultural that point to the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Graham gave us a few uh, pointers last week from Acts chapter 16 first and then from Philippians chapter 1. What did we see about Paul and, and what he expects? And the incomprehensibility, I suppose, of the response in relation to the situation. But what about praise in prison? This church was set up, this church was founded on praise in prison. I don't know about you guys, but I don't hear many folks who are prisoners praising God. What I usually see in prison, and there's a guy at Liberty who's a prison officer, and he's told me numerous stories. What you find is people who complain. People who point to everyone and anything as being to blame for their situation rather than them. 
That this church in Philippi was founded on praise in prison. What about joy in suffering? Chapter 1 verse 18, Paul says this, Through my imprisonment, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is a letter that is filled with suffering, and yet at the same time is filled with joy. What about delight in death? Chapter 1 verse 23, Paul quite openly, quite clearly, very unambiguously says, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Not just a resigning himself that he's going to die one day, but a delight in that thought. What about fearlessness in adversity? Chapter 1 verse 28, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Some of the things that we'll see in the coming weeks as we continue to study this letter are peace and anxiety. Chapter 4, 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and by petition with thanksgiving, present the request to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in who? In Christ Jesus. What about contentment and lack? Paul says, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Look at all of these situations where, if you're being honest, the response is not what you or I would normally give to the situation that Paul is pointing to or would find himself in. What I'd like us to do is spend some time here in chapter 2 looking at Paul's call for and example of one, unity and diversity, and two, humility instead of honour. What do we know about the members of the church here at Philippi? Well, we know one thing about them, they were a pretty mixed bag. Churches tend to be filled with a mixed bag of people. As I'm looking out over here, there are some really good-looking people, there are some ugly people. There are a mixed bag of people. There are older folks, there are younger folks, there are folks who are well-educated, there are folks who are less educated. There are folks who come from a particular geographical location and folks who come from another particular geographical location. Can I tell you something, guys? That is one of the glories of the church. That is one of the amazing things about the church, is that these people from all these diverse situations can come together. And we know from looking back at Acts chapter 16, that this was a diverse group of people. We've got a prison officer and his family. So there's a male and his family. Other females, I'm sure, possibly kids. You've got Lydia, who was a seller of purple clothes. She's probably quite wealthy. There was a, she came from Thyatira as well, she didn't come from Philippi, so there's a geographical location to throw in there. What about the slave girl who was saved by Paul casting out this demon? She was a slave, probably the polar opposite from Lydia coming from Thyatira with her wealth and her business. So we've got a group of people here who are totally diverse in nature. And what do you get with a group of people who are totally diverse in nature? Well, a very positive thing you get is shared effort. Many hands make light work, as they say. And in the case of the church that is charged with the greatest work anyone could ever be charged with, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then a group of diverse people with diverse giftings is vitally important. 
Paul writing to the Ephesians says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people, the church, for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we get sheer effort with the diversity. You know, something we're always guaranteed to get with this diversity too is problems. Differences of opinion, competing agendas, personality clashes, and power trips. None of which, Paul says, have any place amongst the people of God. It seems to me that that's exactly what in some way or another was happening here at the church at Philippi. There's one very obvious situation if you turn over to chapter 4 verse 2 that Paul alludes to as he speaks to this church here at Philippi. What did he say in chapter 4 verse 2? I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintishu to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side side in the cause of the gospel. Here are two women who are obviously not like-minded, who are obviously at war with each other in one way or another. We don't know the details other than the fact that Paul specifically points that out as being a problem in the church at Philippi. You can be pretty sure though that any diverse group of people there would be other rumblings going on behind the scenes too as well as what was happening with Yulia uh, and Syntyche. And in a sense it's apt to happen because it's human nature. And you know something in those three words that is where the problem lies. It's human nature. Paul writes to the church here at Philippi. And how does he address them right at the very start? Read back chapter 1. He is a servant, him and Timothy, servants in Christ Jesus, to who? Saints in Christ at Philippi. These guys are saints in Christ. This behaviour has no place among saints in Christ. Their human nature has been crucified with Christ. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. Not just a ticket to heaven. Not just a there's my ticket, it doesn't matter, and then I'll get to see him in the glory. Because can I tell you something? See if you don't want your life from now, you'll not want to see him in the glory. You'll not want to see that man who tells you about your sin. Who tells you that you're not as good as you ought to be. But as we'll see a little later, who comes humbly and gives his life at Calvary. Saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. You know something, if this had been the local bowling club, if this had been the amateur dramatic society, Paul could maybe have tried to get alongside them and say to them, listen guys, you need to sort this out. But he could not in any way with the same gravitas, with the same confidence as he does here in his letter to Philippians, to the Philippians. What does he say? He says, be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and of one mind. In chapter 1 verse 27, he's already said, stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And what grounding does he give for this appeal? He gives the grounding of the foundation of who they are in Christ Jesus. 
who they are in Christ Jesus. What did he say? Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, chapter 1, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion. It points them back to who they are in Christ Jesus. And one commentator says this, this is no simple ethical summons in the sense that the readers are being exhorted to just do good. Rather, the apostle urges his Christian friends on the basis of supernatural, objective realities that have already occurred in their own experience. Objective realities. I wonder how many of your decisions, I wonder how many of my decisions this week have been made on the basis of objective realities. You know, we live in a society that tells us there's no objective reality. That tells us that it doesn't matter what we feel. If you feel something different from me, that's okay. You can be right and I can be right. We live in a society that says there are no objective realities to the point that if you're born a boy, depending on how you feel, you can then become a girl. And can I tell you something, guys? I'm not having a pop at anybody. I'm not going to pop a particular people group or whatever. What I'm saying is the world is mixed up. The world bases its decision making on how it feels rather than an objective reality. And let me tell you guys, it infiltrates the church. We need to make our decisions based on objective realities. We need to live our lives. I wonder if you're a roller coaster. Sometimes I'm on a roller coaster. Sometimes I'm up here. Sometimes I'm down here. And can I tell you why that's the case? Because very often I go on my feelings. Because one day I feel what a wonderful Christian. The next day I feel as if I'm a failure. But what if I remember that I am united with Christ? An objective reality. Something that I did not bring about. Something that you did not bring about. Let's make our decisions as church based on objective realities. Feelings, guys, don't get me wrong, are extremely important. But if feelings are at odds with objective reality, objective reality must win at all costs. How many of us would tell our children to clean their rooms if they feel like it? Simple statement, guys. It hits home, doesn't it? Clean your room, Caleb, if you feel like it. Oh, well, I don't feel like it. Well, then that's okay, sir. But that's the way our society tells us to live life. That's the way sometimes as church we live our lives. You know, it should be no surprise that we're calling to the Philippines, calling the Philippines to such radical living as he's about to do, that Paul grounds his appeal in these supernatural objective realities that they've already experienced as Christians. Genuine like-mindedness in love and in spirit is impossible for any diverse group unless God firstly brings them into unity with himself. And is therefore at work enabling them to be united to one another. And it should be no surprise either that Paul goes on to say that the maintaining of the unity that we have with one another through Christ is made possible by our unity with Christ. And our unity with Christ, Paul tells us quite clearly from this chapter, is only made possible through humility. 
What does he say? He says, being like-minded, verse 2, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You know, Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Don't need to be a theologian to work out what Paul's saying. You don't need to do four years of Bible college to, to know what Paul is calling us to here. It doesn't miss and hit the wall, as my mum used to say. You know, I don't know if you picked up on it, but Paul here in chapter 2 of Philippians uses quite a poetic kind of way of writing. I never picked up on it, it was known until I read some of the commentaries that they pointed me uh, in this direction. There's no poetry as we would normally do in your days, your kid comes in with a poem. By Daniel came in with one for Fiona for Mother's Day, and it was, uh, there was a tea bag in it, it was something about me and then tea, so you have a cup of tea, so obviously I had to me in it to rhyme with tea. Uh, so it's not that type of poetry, it's Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry has got all different styles, all different things that they use in order to bring uh, a point across. In verse 1, uh, he uses something called synonymous parallelism. But if you look at verse 1, uh, he uses, in a sense, kind of a, a, an ascending order. So he uses almost to get to the same point, he, he drives the same point home by saying not the same thing again and again, but something very similar. So these things can all be grouped. Uh, together. In verse 2 he uses something called chiast, a chiastic literary device where the first and last lines and the second and third lines are virtually the same. So being like-minded would mirror and of one mind, having the same love would mirror in some way being one in spirit. Here though, in the verse that we're looking at now, he uses something called antithetical parallelism. These are words I had not even heard of guys, so uh, if you don't get them, don't worry. But I think it does actually, it does, it does give you any clues to where he's going with this. He stands two contrasting ways of behaving side by side. So if over here you have how not to behave, then what it would say is this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, not looking to your own interests. And if over here you had, here's how you should behave, then you would have rather in humility value others above yourselves, each of you looking to the interests of others. You know, I wonder if I had to give each and every one of these a wee post-it notebook, and you to write every single person in this room, put their name on one post-it note, and I had to say to you, what I want you to do is I want you to stick those post-it notes at one side or the other with this person's name on it. And imagine it's anonymous. Imagine that the rest of the people in the room can't see you because that might affect where you put the post-it note. Imagine that is not possible. I wonder where you would find your name. I wonder where my name would be. I wonder where your name would be. Would your name be placed at this side of those who are always doing something out of selfish ambition. Vain conceit's quite an outdated term, a more modern way of saying it is get too high an opinion of themselves. Not really interested in others. And I wonder if your name would be at this side. They're humble. 
They value others and they look out for their interests as well as their own. I wonder where Yodia and Syntyche would have placed in this world. I wonder where Yodia would have placed Syntyche and I wonder vice versa. And I wonder if they'd have been surprised to see their own name in the opposite wall from what they expected. You know, it's interesting in chapter 4 that Paul says to the people in these churches, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. You know, sometimes we need other people to show us what we're sports, don't we? Sometimes we need other people to tell us, listen, you've got it wrong. And again, that is the glory of the church, guys. What a wonderful privilege it is to be part of the church. I'm so glad that I'm not a good Christian. Because can I tell you something about the question? God has designed the church exactly as it is. And let's start behaving like the church. There's one thing I'm sure. And that's if any of us here today found their names predominantly on the negative side, predominantly on the they're selfish, they're always looking out for themselves, they're always have a high opinion of themselves and, and a low opinion of other people I would be 100% positive that if your name was in that side you wouldn't stand up and say I'm actually quite pleased with that that's the kind of person my mum and my dad always wanted me to be that's the kind of person that I want my kids to see me as being you know I reckon even the most hardened individuals would be deeply saddened. Would be deeply, deeply saddened because they know that's not the way it should be. And it's not the way it should be, guys. Because when God created the world in which we live, we were created in perfect unity with God. And in perfect unity with one another. Genesis tells us that the unity with God and the unity with our fellow man was a blissful reality. A blissful reality that was shattered when from the very first time, and it's happened billions of times ever since, man chose in a willful act of treason to rebel against the Creator God. And we only been eating a piece of fruit and I remember as a young Christian, and sometimes even now I can uh, think that way, it's only eating a piece of fruit. But even considering eating of that fruit, that God had prepared. Man was well under me. Well under me. To decide in the animal race. Thanks for your advice, God. Appreciate that, bud. But I know best. And that all they needed could be found out with and outside of Almighty God. You know, even if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Surely you must admit that as a world, as a humanity, we have rejected God massively. And that our world is in such a mess. <coughs> you know guys, I know I'm being well over time here, guys, and I do apologise. I just think this is, as you're doing a series, it's good to get into the, uh, the guts of it. I heard 
are recording online. We're talking about unity uh, with one another, unity with a fellow man and unity in the church. I heard a recording. It was a girl in a dormitory in a university in America. I don't know if you heard it. Sometimes these things can float up on Facebook or whatever. And it was a girl recording. She said, listen guys, I don't know if you can hear this, but there are people outside of my dorm door shouting, we hate blacks. Chanting it willingly, quite happily, thinking it was the best thing that they've ever said that. We hate blacks. If you reject God, you're guaranteed to reject one another. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. The clear teaching of Scripture tells us that every one of us who are born into this world come with that preconceived notion that we know best. I've got a 12 year old boy who is living evidence uh, of that at the moment. And that we have no need for God in our lives. We willingly believe the lie that ultimate happiness, lasting joy is only found outside of God. And that we'll only be happy if we're needs were wants and were desires of men. And you know, when we get to that stage, let me tell you guys, we'll think nothing of trampling over others to simply get away. And can I tell you something, guys? You might be sitting there thinking, that's no me. That can be me. I've just talked about my 12-year-old kid. He just left subtle. We develop subtleties, don't we? We just get better. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right, brother. How sad. Mm-hmm. Although we were created to find our joy in God and living for Him in harmony with our fellow man, the Bible clearly tells us that the world, the devil, and even we all conspire to make sure that that does not become a reality. The Bible tells us that God is rightfully angry with us, not in a capricious way as some would have us believe, but in a way that anyone would be as something precious. Himself and a fellow man were treated with such disdain. Think of the worst thing that man can do to another, and consider as the Bible would have us do, that they do it first and foremost to God. The King and the Creator of the universe. No wonder God stands in judgment. If there's one thing that the Bible teaches us, it's that plight is hopeless. Hopeless outside of Christ. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, sorry, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, there's only hope comes if we trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because look what he did. And your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. No wonder we have the end following verses. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are united with God through Christ. And we can only have that unity with one another. Humility was never something that was international outside of God. But because Christ humbled himself, we can humble ourselves in order to build one another up in the unity and in the fellowship of the Spirit. I'm going very quickly, guys, just read through. This is a great book, The Calvary Road. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, by Boy Hesse. Let me just read you uh, a few portions of this that really get across um, the nature uh, of what I've been saying today. It is always self who gets irritable, envious, resentful, critical, and worried. It is self who is hard and unyielding in his attitudes to others. It is self who is shy, self-conscious, and reserved. The willingness of Jesus to be broken for us is the all-compelling motive in us being broken to. We see him who is in the form of God, counting not equality with God a prize to be grasped, but letting go and taking upon himself the form of a servant, God's servant, man's servant. We see him willing to have no rights of his own, no home of his own, no possessions of his own, willing to let men revile him and not revile again, willing to let men tread on him and not retaliate to defend himself. Above all, we see him broken as he meekly goes to Calvary to become men's scapegoat by bearing their sins in his own body on the tree. In a pathetic passage, in a prophetic psalm, he says this, I am a worm and no man. Those who have been in tropical lands tell us that there's a big difference between a snake and a worm when you attempt to strike them. The snake rears itself up, hisses, and tries to strike back. A true picture of self, but a worm offers no resistance. allows you to do what you like. To kick it. Squash it under your heel. A picture of true brokenness. Jesus was willing to become just that for us. A worm and no man. And he did so because that is what he sought us to be. Worms having forfeited all rights by our sin except to deserve hell. He now calls us to take a rightful place as worms for him and with him. The whole Sermon in the Mount with his teaching of non-retaliation, love for enemies, self-giving, assumes that that is our position. But only the vision of love that was willing to be broken for us can constrain us to be willing for that. Lord, bend that proud and stiff-necked eye. Help me to bow the head and die. Beholding him on Calvary, who bowed his head for me. Let's just pray.